Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for joining us on this day after Thanksgiving. This is a special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning and welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It is Friday, the 26th of November. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving day. I hope your Thanksgiving celebration continues into this day. Let us be people who don't just give thanks on one day, but have a real attitude of gratitude and live into what it means to be people of thanks. All right, so here's the bottom line um, for this opening segment right up front. God is. God is fill in the blank. God is good, God is beautiful, God is true, God is great, God is trustworthy. Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There's a word that pops up in both of those, and that is the word truth or true. So what does it look like and mean for God to be true and Jesus to be the truth and for the Spirit of God to lead us into all truth. That's an important consideration as we live in the midst of a culture that is captive very much to the father of lies and where, you know, frankly, we're tempted to believe many kinds of misrepresentations, mistruths, half-truths, even outright lies around us. So, We're going to open up our conversation today about the truth in terms of spiritual discernment and how we actually recognize truth from lies. My conversation partner is Renee DeResta. Wow, what a delight to welcome Renee DeResta today. She is the Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. It's a cross-disciplinary program of research, teaching, and policy engagement for the study of abuse in current information technologies. So let me just uh, say this. Um, Renee could go up and down the ladder today with um, the Senate Intelligence Committee. She could do so with anybody in the realm of of what's happening on social media and media networks. She's also a mom. And so we could talk about cooking and crafting and why we need to have better surge protectors in our offices. But today, we're going to have her help us understand what is happening in the world of social media and where it's taking us in terms of places we don't want to go. Renee DeResta, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me. So your depth and breadth of the knowledge on the topics that we're going to cover today uh, goes way beyond what most of us could even begin to to touch our toe into. So we're going to scratch the surface, and I know I'm going to ask you questions about issues that um, for you are, you know, you've been thinking about these and talking about them for a very long time. For some folks listening, all they know is that they're, they're at risk on social media in ways that they don't understand. 
Um, and so if you could help us roam around in misinformation, disinformation, and what you have, uh, I think, coined the term ampliganda. So just jump into this conversation wherever feels comfortable for you. Sure. So we uh, so mis and disinformation are, are very old uh, terms for very old phenomenon. Uh, misinformation is usually used to mean something that is spread that is inadvertently wrong. So in the context of social media, um, you know, we're all sharing content constantly. We're all posting content constantly. We want to be part of a community. We want to share information with our friends. Um, and misinformation oftentimes is shared out of a genuine desire to help somebody, right? You see something on the internet, it concerns you. Uh, maybe it's talking about some sort of uh, toxic ingredient is something that that actually kind of goes viral pretty often. You know, there's a, a arsenic in Cheerios kind of stories that kind of come out. And misinformation is is information where people are spreading it. It turns out not to be true. So they're spreading it because they think that they're helping people. They think that they're helping their community um, not be harmed. And, and so they're inadvertently spreading bad information. The disinformation dynamic is different. It's where people are spreading information very deliberately with the intent to mislead. And so oftentimes the people who are spreading disinformation are not, <clears throat> excuse me, are not ordinary people. They're people with an agenda. And so that's where, you know, you hear stories of, for example, um, state actors, right? Uh, governments, for example, that try to target the citizens of another country with false information about their political leaders. Uh, what we saw with Russia in 2016 was creating accounts that were fake, fake people pretending to be Americans and then spreading information to other Americans who were really members of those communities. So pretending to be a fake Black Lives Matter activist to manipulate real Black Lives Matter activists, pretending to be a fake Texas secessionist to manipulate and rile up real people who believe that Texas should secede. And oftentimes with disinformation, the material being spread is not something that you can uh, falsify is how we say it. Not, it's not a fact that is wrong. It's a particular uh, propaganda. It's an information with an agenda designed to rile people up to make them very angry. But it's not something where you can point to it and say that particular fact is wrong. So again, misinformation and disinformation have always existed. It's just that now that they're on social platforms, there are some really different dissemination dynamics. So ways in which this information spreads from person to person and community member to community member because we all have the power to decide what we're going to share. We all have the power to hit that retweet button. And so we participate in this process of spreading information where in older media environments, it was much more broadcast. You would see something on television, you would hear it on the radio. You might talk about it with your friends, but you didn't have the power to hit that share button and reach people potentially all over the world. So I um, listened to and watched your testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, which I think now would go back a, a handful of years. But in there, you talk about the way the content is created, tested, and hosted on platforms like YouTube, Reddit, and Pinterest. Then it's pushed on platforms like Twitter and Facebook, targeted at the most receptive. Then you talked about trending algorithms being gamed to make content go viral. And then that's the stuff that's picked up and covered by mainstream media 
which then results in search engines serving it up again. And then that's probably what a person like me, you know, average Joe out here is clicking on and sending out to others. But it started with somebody who created content that was um, designed to not just mislead, but to actually lead us in a particular behavioral direction. Am I understanding how it works? Yes, that's an excellent description, actually. So and I'm glad it came through in the Senate testimony. <laughs> that again, that dynamic of content creation. Uh, so anyone can create content. This is actually the beauty of the internet, right? We have this explosion of unique culture, of of unique dynamics. You know, new forms of video, new forms of of images that are very much a, a part of internet culture, as opposed to again prior information mediums. And so we want to see that creativity, that explosion in people expressing themselves. The challenge, though, is that anytime you have a system or a tool, many, many people will use it for good, and then some smaller handful of people will use it for evil. And so the people who are using it with the intent to manipulate oftentimes are very, very good at understanding how the distribution mechanisms work. So if you want to get something trending, what we would see in 2015 timeframe or so is people would create a whole lot of fake accounts. And Twitter's trending algorithm at the time, they have since fixed this, but at the time did not filter out fake accounts or did not do what we call underweight them in determining what was trending. So there were a lot of these accounts and maybe they were created yesterday. They weren't real people. Uh, they weren't, you know, real people expressing a political opinion, for example, but because the trending algorithm would decide what to surface based on the number of tweets in a hashtag or the number of times a particular URL was shared, perhaps, what you would start to see was you could game that, that feature and capture the public's attention in a very inauthentic way. And so the response to that from the tech platforms was to start thinking more what we call adversarially. When a platform rolls out a feature, how are the small handful of bad actors going to try to manipulate it? Because again, what we don't want to see necessarily is the shutting down of all sorts of features that enable this kind of expression and this kind of you know, cultural growth and the rise of very beneficial movements and things. But what we do want to do is recognize that with any power like that, the power to reach millions of people, there are going to be people incentivized to use it who are antisocial. And so how do we think about like the, um, the trade-offs of balancing freedom of expression with coming up with policies that minimize harms or with technological solutions that reduce the ease with which people can manipulate the public? Mm. Um, all right. Uh, if you're listening right now, you know how happy I am to uh, know that Renee DiResta is in, in the world and on, on the job uh, related to this. You can find her at ReneeDiResta.com. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Resuming our conversation with Renee Duresta, you can find her and links to um, other conversations that she's had and things that she has written at ReneeDuresta.com. So, Renee, 
you you have a background in this seems uh, probably random uh, in light of the conversation we've just had. But um, you, your background is in supply chain, like the actual movement of goods around the globe. So, wow. Do you want to comment on what's going on with the supply chain? <laughs> <laughs> I my my background was actually in tech. There's a uh, you know one of the great things about Silicon Valley actually is that the you can bring together people who have very different types of expertise and skill sets and bring them to bear on solving a problem. So I've had a, a few kind of uh, you know seemingly random unconnected <laughs> career areas. No, but it's good, um, right? Like you're that. the person that comes to the table with your skill set and applies it to whatever the challenge is right there. And that's just so cool. That's, I think that's, I appreciate you recognizing that. I think that's the, um, that's the, the thing that I've always really appreciated about Silicon Valley is that ability for you know, people who have very different ways of viewing the world. I started a supply chain logistics startup with um, two other folks. One was a person who had experienced a challenge, right. Who had been trying to move uh, goods across the, uh, you know, across the world and was, and actually found it almost impossible to secure a container. And then another person who had worked in supply chain at Apple. And so his entire job actually was, was managing a, a massive supply chain and understanding trade-offs between ocean freight and air freight. Uh, and then my experience was in being just very curious around, uh, I had, I had spent a bunch of time in financial markets. Um, and so my experience was in thinking about how do you create efficiency and contracts? Were there ways to create new types of, uh, of supply chain processes so that companies didn't have to go through long-term tenders and the supply chain could be potentially more adaptive, more, more uh, nimble? And so that was where that, um, so, so <laughs> in a funny way, my experience on that team um, was more from the, uh, the, the data science and uh, could we think about new and novel ways to create contracts point of view. It's been remarkable though to, to watch now a couple of years out of um, of working on that team and to see the impact of container shortages and inefficiencies in the supply chain on, uh, you know, the experience that so many companies and also individuals are having today. Uh, we, funny enough, um, we had actually ordered some furniture <laughs> for our kids' room in May of 2020, and uh, it still has not found a container and made its way to us. So <laughs> one day, yeah. I hope. You, know. you need, like, Grandpa on the job to go build something. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Yeah. It's totally crazy. So you are a real mom. Um, you have real concerns about the things that concern all of us who have kids uh, kids at home. Um, you love to cook. You love to craft. I All of those things like make you real. So thank you for including them um, in in sort of your publicly facing uh, information. Let me ask you about that. So how do we how do we engage in this world that, uh, you know, anybody can Google anybody at any moment? Um, how do we engage in that in a way that is safe? a great question. Um, so I have three kids. They are seven, four, and just turned one. And, you know, and they're, as you, as you know, I mean, I think they're a huge motivating factor in my life. I started looking at the dynamics of anti-vaccine activism online when the Disneyland measles outbreak hit California, you know, right around the age when my son was still too young to get his measles shot. And so it was a very personal experience for me, actually, to see the impact that anti-vaccine misinformation was having on my community and then to experience it not as a, you know, as a 
a bystander interested in the statistics or the, you know, the, the network dynamics of it, but to really feel it acutely as a mom saying, how do I protect my own child in this environment where this kind of misinformation is leading increasing percentages of community members to make bad decisions that put the entire community at risk. And so I think that, um, you know, that, that experience as a parent is, is very transformative. My son, my oldest, who now is um, almost eight, you know, he wants to be on the internet because he's too little to realize the bad aspects of it. And we've tried to shelter him a bit from that. And so he wants to go on YouTube and he wants to watch, you know, origami videos is his latest thing. He, during the pandemic, (laughs) we were of course homeschooling and trying to keep two kids and a newborn um, engaged while working a full-time job, which I think was an experience that, that, that many moms had um, over the last year and a half. And the easiest thing to do, of course, is to say, yeah, here's your screen. Um, But then we had to come up with what were the sort of safe ways for us to do that. And so we did really try to, we would go and we would download YouTube videos for him um, or download other videos for him so that he could watch them on a machine, but wouldn't hit the kind of unexpected content that pops up occasionally through autoplay or, you know, recommendation engines. So we tried to foster his curiosity, let him tell us what topics he wanted, but then we would go and we would um, try to, you know, bring the content down locally as opposed to just giving him internet access. Um, He would constantly find new and novel ways to search. So even before he could type or read, he would use the voice commands. So (laughs) we felt in this funny way, I was like this little adversarial actor in our house where (laughs) no matter how many different uh, approaches we tried to, um, you know, to, to, to coming up with solutions, he was just very curious and would, would find ways around them. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And so what we've tried to do is emphasize the importance of balance and the importance of um, not being on a screen for too long. You know, we really, we use limits on apps and things. And then for helping him find information, you know, he, he does know, we, um, we enforce pretty regularly, actually, that there are tricky people on the internet and people who try to tell you wrong things or who try to make you click on things um, that are going to, you know, either hurt you in some way or, I mean, one example was um, he downloaded malware onto my laptop, you know? <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> because he said, well, you know, the the button popped up and I clicked the the X, I clicked the no. But of course, the way that some spammers work, the, the entire bad window looks like a no button. And so he thought he was doing the right thing by clicking the no button. But of course, he was inadvertently continuing along, you know, down this down this path to downloading malware. So it's been very interesting as a person in uh, in tech, and my husband's a a software engineer. um, So we're both in tech and trying to think through how do we create limits within our own home where we enable him to use the internet for what it its best um, you know its, its best incarnation is, which is as a phenomenal source of information, a phenomenal tool to spur creativity, while not um, you know giving him a, a total free for all where he's spending twenty four seven on the internet in an unsupervised way, um, despite the fact that it it is really a challenge for I think for working parents in the in the age of COVID to feel that they're both um, you know, helping their children have a rich experience despite limitations, um, you know, while also not wanting to kind of just hand them a screen and, uh, you know, get back to work. So that, that's been our, that's been our challenge and, and our way of dealing with it is just to try to encourage him to do active things. Also here, take a programming class, take a typing class, do something where you're not just sitting there passively consuming someone's YouTube videos, but the YouTube videos are 
inspiring your creativity? How do we use the internet as a source of inspiration as opposed to passive entertainment? Yeah, we need to develop like master class for kids, like a a thing that would draw them in in a way that adults are being drawn into learning um, as well. All right. So I could talk to you all day. It is an absolute joy. I kind of want to know, you know, where Bob the Cow came from. And I kind of want to standardize <laughs> book sizes for children's books just for him. So you you fascinate me. I love that you're voraciously curious. You're so smart about so many things and you're applying them to real issues. Um, and so thank you for your willingness to come and talk with us um, if you ever just want to talk to average people out there in the world, that's who's listening um, here to Mornings with Carmen. And so thank you for connecting us with information uh, about social media and technology that we otherwise just we just wouldn't have access to understanding it because we're not reading Wired. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's really great to to connect and to help people think about the the things that I find fascinating. So I appreciate the opportunity. We really appreciate it. All right. That's Renee DeResta. You guys can find her online at ReneeDeResta.com. We'll be right back. I don't want to see an inflatable nothing to the day after Thanksgiving. So the season of Advent officially begins this Sunday, just a couple of days away. Now, I'll confess, we may wait to start our countdown to Christmas on December the 1st, but now's the time to get ready to get ready, at least, if you're not actually putting up a tree this weekend or accumulating your uh, supplies related to Christmas, it is time to get ready to get ready. So next up, a conversation about getting the whole family into the whole Word of God in anticipation of the expected one. We're going to talk with Scott James. All right, Scott James is back. He is a doctor. He is an elder at his home church. Let's see, what else can I tell you about him that we haven't said before? Um, I think this was news to me, uh, in addition to serving as a research, research fellow for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He also serves on Focus on the Family's Physician Research Council. I didn't know that. I do know that Scott is an author of books and a dad. Scott James, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen, thanks for having me back. Good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. Um, how um, how are things in pediatrics these days? Things are good at the moment. Uh, we're <clears throat> settling settling down a little bit right now, so uh, uh, settling into what I would term as a, a a new normal. Good. Well, that's good to hear. All right, so um, settling in is not what we're doing in relationship to the holiday season. In fact, we are all getting necessarily unsettled in order that we can, you know, ramp up for all of the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. And I think that's why our conversation about Advent and preparing ourselves and our families for Advent is so important. Tell us about the expected one, anticipating all of Jesus in the Advent. The expected one is a an Advent devotional uh, that really is geared towards that that aspect that you mentioned, preparation. So uh, I, I'm of the nature that if I 
uh, am celebrating and uh, feasting and partying kind of for a prolonged period of time, I get worn out and, and things I begin to take things for granted, right? The celebration sort of loses its shine if I'm always in celebration mode. So when I approach Christmas and when I was thinking about how to shepherd my family to approach Christmas, uh, I kind of this this concept of Advent, which is an, an old concept in, in church history, is just basically the season of fasting before the feast. And so that season of preparation, spiritual preparation, looking forward to the coming celebration uh, is just an opportunity to, to take some personal reflection and to be thinking about just that baseline need that we have. So why is Christmas so amazing and worth celebrating? Well, it's because of the desperate need that I have for a savior. And so uh, taking that season of Advent, that season of preparation, where I sort of reflect on my need for a savior and the promises of a coming savior, uh, I, I find that, that sort of helping my family focus on that, not in a doom and gloom sort of way, but just in a, a, a prepar preparatory fashion, uh, it makes Christmas morning shine so much brighter because you're kind of sort of coming through that fast. And then the feast is just marvelous. So the expected one is, is a, a relatively straightforward and simple devotional uh, book. It's primarily designed for families, but it can be used by anyone. And it leads you through Old Testament passages with just sort of reflections that trace the thread of the coming Messiah all through the Old Testament, uh, then highlighting his glorious arrival on Christmas morning. All right, so I'm just going to open to December the 9th, which features Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so the reading is, and I'm reading from the expected one, anticipating all of Jesus in the Advent. And yes, we're giving copies away today. So if you want to text the word book to 877-933-2484, you can enter that drawing. All right, so on December the 9th, we have Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And then um, Scott writes this, God promised that he would send a messenger ahead of the rescuer in order to help God's people recognize him. The messenger would announce his arrival. When the time actually came, the messenger would proclaim, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is a reference to John chapter 1, verse 29. And so we turn the page and we have these connecting questions to ask with our kids. Why do you think God sent a messenger to tell people what uh, that the Savior had come? And then, Scott, you so generously provide an answer for the parent, because it totally occurs to me that we now live in a generation where parents want to do this, but parents weren't raised in families who did this. And so if only the question is on the page and the answer isn't provided to the parent, we don't really necessarily know what we're going for. Um, and so in answer to the question, why do you think God sent a messenger to tell people that the Savior had come? Scott offers this. He wants people to be saved. So he made sure to tell them clearly that their Savior, Jesus, had arrived. And then you ask your kids, who was this messenger? The answer, John the Baptist. And then you reflect. What, uh, who do you know that needs to hear the good news of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin? What is keeping you from being God's messenger to them? And then there's a prayer point as well. Ask God to give you the heart of a messenger. Ask him to empower you to tell his story to all who need to hear it. And I would then say um, the soundtrack for that page might be Go Tell It on the Mountain. So, um, um, so uh, there's a rhythm to the way that you've designed these. I um, 
I just recognize that, you know, we have a generation of parents who were not raised in homes where this was the rhythm of Advent um, or the rhythm of preparation. They don't they don't necessarily know how to ask their children questions about these texts, and they're not certain of the answers. And so I just really appreciate that you've made it plain and simple and beautiful. Thanks. I, I definitely recognize that as well, that there are a lot of people who would be interested in this sort of uh, this idea of family worship or just uh, spending time in the word together as a family. Uh, but that's that can be daunting. That, that can kind of feel like uh, I know a lot of parents. I know I myself feel uh, ill-equipped for that sometimes. And so even though I would have a good desire to do that, I would be kind of uh, not certain about how to go about it. And so I really uh, I, I wanted to make this book as accessible as possible. So, I mean, the biblical truths there are hopefully profound and life-changing. So I don't want to sell that short because the Bible is the center point. Uh, but the devotionals themselves are rather concise and straightforward and um, manageable, I guess I would say, because I think uh, a lot of times you, you have this ideal picture of, of you're going to gather around and spend time in the word together as a family. And like 45 minutes later, the kids are kind of bonking their heads against the wall because you're just droning on about you know something or reading way too long of a passage or something like that. It just becomes something that is not feasible. And so I, I wanted to make these uh, to, to where a family could manageably uh, dive into the word together in a, in a significant way. And yet, Honestly, if you sort of go through these, they, they each day takes about 10 minutes. Uh, I will give a caveat. Each day takes about 10 minutes unless you or your kids uh, go on some beautiful tangent where you're tracing all kinds of amazing questions. And that's what happens uh, a lot of times is I gave those suggested answers because I want, you know, like you said, I want parents to kind of have a backstop. I want parents to be able to have, you know, if there's crickets when they ask the question, I want a parent to be able to have something that they can teach their kids in that moment. But what I find honestly is oftentimes my kids uh, answer above and beyond the little parentheses suggested answer that I have. And they're tracing threads in different directions. And we've been doing this exact uh, devotional. We've been doing this devotional in our family for over 10 years now because uh, I wrote it for them a long time ago. Uh, and so now over the years, as they've gotten into the rhythms and the habits of doing it, they're seeing connections they never saw before. They're kind of, you can just see these eureka moments, you know, each December we do this, some mm. new layer clicks in their mind and in their heart. Uh, and they take my wife and I on these beautiful tangents, uh, where they're tracing threads that I didn't even draw out in the book. So it's, it's really fun to watch. I love that. I love that. The book is The Expected One, Anticipating All of Jesus in the Advent. The author is Scott James. He joins us now. We'll be right back. So what are you expecting this Christmas? Or better asked, who are you expecting how are you preparing your family and yourself for the expected one? That is the title of Scott James' Advent devotional, um, helping us anticipate all of Jesus in the Advent. Um, Scott, you also uh, offer up the risen one, because obviously Christmas only gets us so far in the conversation um, as people of faith. So talk a little bit about the risen one. I do think as excited and as much as we celebrate Christmas, uh, one of the goals of the expected one was to sort of put it in context. When we think of redemptive history, when we think of God's 
big rescue plan. So that's why the expected one spends so much time in the Old Testament sort of pointing out all the different aspects of who Jesus was going to, to be. Like the promises were not just about a baby in the manger. The promises were about the righteous life that he would live and the death that he would die on our behalf and the resurrection and eternal reign that he would um, uh, perform. So uh, the the risen one was basically just sort of a, a thought of continuation. So now that we have unleashed the feast of Christmas morning, uh, we enter into a, a new season. We enter into Christmas tide. We enter into uh, eventually Epiphany that goes into Lent that leads into Easter. So we've got this traditional church calendar that not everyone is familiar with, and that's cool. But it is essentially a roadmap <clears throat> that can help guide a family or help guide a person uh, just to think through who Jesus was and what He accomplished on our behalf. So the risen one <clears throat> is something that. Uh, I figure if a family has gotten into the habit of family worship and doing some devotionals throughout the month of December as they uh, uh, observe Advent, then I think <clears throat> why not just keep that going into the new year? And, and so the Risen One is a, it's a, instead of a daily devotional, it's a weekly devotional, and it's going to span a longer amount of time, and it's going to help uh, a family uh, have weekly devotionals in, in which they just basically sort of walk through uh, the life of Christ and his preparation for the cross and then his accomplishment of our salvation on the cross and then his res resurrection and beyond as he unleashes the church with the power of his spirit. Uh, so weekly devotionals, think of it as kind of a Lenten and Easter devotionals that a, a family can walk through. Uh, it's got, you know, uh, weekly uh, devotionals to read through and then a, a daily reading plan that, that families can kind of continue in the word each and every day. Uh, as well. So it's just a, a, the goal is just to keep families in the word, keep keep families uh, returning to uh, that precious time together where we can help point our kids to the word and show them that God is worthy of our time and attention and affection. So, um, Scott, I want to go in a slightly different direction with our conversation today, because I've been I've been thinking about having the opportunity to talk with you and just recognizing the incredible range of challenges faced by children today and you know as a pediatrician as a dad as a church elder um, as a concerned christian you know when you when you sort of scan across the challenges um desperate challenges in some cases that kids face here in the united states of america but also around the world like i'm just i'm just wondering in your own time with the Lord, are there some like why questions that emerge and some like painful struggling with the Lord in terms of why kids are living in with such privation and distress today? Yeah, the, there's certainly, there's certainly a lot of heavy, um, heaviness that kids are walking through today. I think honestly, even in ways that I didn't walk through as a kid, I think every, every season, there's nothing new under the sun. And in every season, uh, people are faced with, with challenges and, uh, uh the effects of sin, uh, in our life and in our world. So in that sense, we've all had that experience growing up, uh, seeing the darkness of the world. These past couple of years obviously have been a bit unique in the way that kids have been facing just massive amounts of, obstacles and challenges and just oppression in all sorts of ways, uh, spiritual and, and physical and everything. I, as a dad, uh, as a pastor and as a doctor, I, I'm walking through that with kids. Uh, I'm a pediatrician, so uh, I, I'm seeing kids who are suffering uh, serious physical ailments uh, over the past two years. 
Um, and, and then also just, yeah, the mental health issues that come with that. And then kind of everything's sort of interconnected. This is, we got to have a, a holistic look on how we're caring for our kids. Uh, so I've certainly mm-hmm. seen that physical and mental and spiritual uh, health are all intertwined. And, and so I think I do ask the why questions and I, and I do have to plead uh, ultimate ignorance as I, I don't have a full comprehension as to why God is choosing to do some of these things right now, but uh, ultimately have to hold on to that, that sovereign view and that ultimate hope that I may not understand why, but I trust him completely. And so uh, even if, even if I can't answer every difficult question that uh, a child asks about why am I having to go through this? um, What I want to do is give them a firm foundation. I want them to be able to ask those hard questions and not be floundering uh, unmoored, no foundation, no anchor as they ask them. I, I want them to know Jesus Christ and I want them to have a, a firm root in the word of God and a, a firm belief in God's ultimate plan for goodness, right? Like he is, he is for us, not against us. And so even as kids are facing uh, these just crazy challenges, I'd like to root them in the word of God and I'd like to give them that foundation. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's one reason why these books like this and, and just any anything we can do to help parents shepherd kids into a word, into the word and into a deeper relationship with God is going to help them navigate these hard situations and honestly ask those questions in faith, ask those questions, trusting that even though I may not understand everything, even though I'm confused by some of this stuff, one thing I'm not confused about is who God is. Uh, So uh, I I want to lead them into the word. I want to help them develop habits and rhythms of uh, personal devotion and personal study and prayer. And so that's why uh, I really hope that families are able to to model this through books like The Expected One and The Risen One and many others, or just simply opening the Bible themselves uh, as a family. Mm-hmm. So um, I would encourage uh, parents to, to model this for their kids and, and, and let them know that they're struggling too, right? Like kids are exactly. going through a lot, but, but as a parent, boy, this has been a really hard few years. Uh, so I, I got to be open yeah, and, and then- honest with Yeah. And it's okay to say, it's okay to say, Hey, I'm just like you, I am a child of God. And so together, even though we're confused or we're a little bit scared um, about some things, or we don't, you know, we don't know why something is happening the way it's happening. You and I are both as children of God going to trust God. We're going to, we're going to trust our good, good father. Um, You know, and I'm your parent and that is an amazing, um, amazing thing. And I'm going to do my very best um, but we're in this together as, you know, as children of God as well. I think that there's an empowerment there to the kid, um, to children, you know, particularly of a certain age um, that invites them to walk alongside us as we walk alongside them, because it is uh, discipleship is this odd journey where people in different generations get to walk beside each other as brothers and sisters. And that's a that's a strange reality as well. Yeah. And not only is it okay, it is dangerous to pretend otherwise. So if Mm, if you as a parent have an inclination to uh, portray like a, like a, I don't know, a a certain type of strength, like an invulnerable strength that I got this (laughs) and I'm not faced by this. And you're sort of all the actual uh, sadness that is going on around you, you're sort of sweeping under a rug and and not acknowledging um, your, that's a, that's not a healthy model for your kids. So I, I, I need to show my kids uh, that, 
I'm a sinner in need of a great savior. I need to show my kids that uh, I'm affected by the sin around me and it, it affects me deeply. And I need to find healthy ways to trust in God as I navigate that and, and represent his love to the world around us. That's hurting so much. So I think that vulnerability is something that kids need to see modeled, not in a hopeless way, but a, a vulnerability, like I said, that is rooted in an ultimate hope that God is good and he does have us. He will keep us. Amen. That's Scott James. He's the author of The Expected One. We'll be right back. So how are you uh, preparing your heart, your home, yourself for the coming of Christ this Christmas? I invite you to consider the good news of great joy for all people. Let's think about it afresh and anew. Christmas, the advent of Christ the one who comes from heaven to earth to dwell among us full of grace and truth. God who puts on human flesh and moves into the neighborhood, the the babe in the manger. What if we were to consider the good news of great joy for all people, afresh and anew this year? And then consider for a moment the fact that there's actually a lot of people who don't know what you know about Christmas. They don't know the real meaning of Christmas. They don't know the Christ. They don't know the story of the angels or the wise men or the star. They don't know who those characters are in that crash on your lawn. They don't know because no one has ever told them the good news of great joy for all people. So even as we come and adore him, even as we love Jesus at Christmas, I think we must also cultivate the ability to tell the old, old story to a new generation that's living in the dark without hope. It is into darkness that the light of Christ shines. He is the light of the world. He is the light of God's redemptive love. And he shines just like that natal star over Bethlehem. How can you cultivate your ability to tell the old, old story of Christmas to a new generation, a generation living in the dark without hope. There's another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.